But we want to make make it clear that not just because you're a Christian scholar doesn't mean you don't do good scholarship. Just like how Sir Francis Collins can do great science work on the Human Genome Project and be a Christian, you can also be a Christian and do great scholarship on the question of James, a brother of Jesus. And if it was the case that uh, the only reason these scholars are coming to this conclusion is because they're Christian, then we would expect the non-Christian scholars to come to a different conclusion. Right. But that is not at all what we see. What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm your host, Jordan, and with me is my co-host, Jared. How's it going, Jared? It's going. I'm excited for today's topic, but uh, I've been just enjoying the spring weather and the brutal heat that's coming our way here. Yeah, I uh, my week's been going all right. My day, not so much. I had to make pizza, and pizza is like the worst thing ever to make. It's terrible. It's my <laughs> least favorite thing in the world to make. But it's really good to eat. It is really good to eat. Uh, unfortunately, it also sticks to everything. I don't know if you've ever dealt with homemade pizza dough, but it was literally sticking to parchment paper coated in rice flour. Like, yeah. what kind of unholy demon <laughs> dough is this? I uh, love making homemade pizzas. Um, I used to be a pizza boy. It was one of my first jobs, but I learned a secret is cornmeal. So putting cornmeal down uh, helps to kind of keep it from sticking to stuff so i just like threw it against the wall and rage <laughs> is was my technique uh speaking of being enraged uh <laughs> today's topic is about jesus specifically did jesus have a brother and was his brother's name james so. right yeah. uh now if you've only ever encountered uh this these kind of stories in maybe sunday school might think the answer is obviously yes, and no one would disagree with you. Uh, the in reality, almost nobody would disagree with you, but some atheists, some mythicists, tend to disagree. So, what we're going to talk about today is what is the evidence that supports Jesus having a brother, one named James. Uh, why are scholars convinced of this? What convinces them? And we'll go over some of the sources yep. for that. Uh, before we kind of jump into that, though, I did want to say, like, it makes no difference to me whatsoever whether Jesus had a brother or didn't have a brother or Jesus existed or didn't exist. Like, it doesn't impact my worldview at all one way or the other. Um, but I do want to believe in things that are true, right? So I don't mm -hmm. want it to be spotting out claims and repeating things other people said. So I think, you know... Yeah, I agree, uh, though I will say if I had a bias, to the extent that I would have a bias, it would be a bias against Jesus existing, I would think, because uh, that would make Christianity even more false than I think it is already, right? Yeah. And whenever you encounter an argument for something that you are inclined to agree with and you start nodding your head and thinking it's good, uh, for me at least, that alarm bells start going off in my head. Like, am I agreeing with this because it's actually good, or am I agreeing with this because I would like it to be true? Right. You know, so I'm actually more skeptical when I find stuff that supports what I think than I am if I find stuff against it. That's really good to be self-aware like that. And I mean, that's something for all of us to consider too, is as we're listening to arguments and stuff, like, why do I why am I so happy that this is going in my favor? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So well, what are some of the things that we do in this show where we do it every time and it's like a thing that we do? 
with the fallacies. Remember that? Uh, yeah. So a fallacy of the day. Today's fallacy of the day has to do with something else we do all the time, which is quoting experts. Today's yes. fallacy of the day is the argument from authority. Now, this fallacy is extremely popular. It's outside of the ad hominem attack fallacy. This is probably the, the second most common one that I see get thrown around. Yeah, or so that somebody's saying, "Hey, you just committed an argument from authority, right?" right? Yeah. Not that you've done it, but that someone else is accusing you of having. Done Correct. It. Yeah. So let's just clear this up right out the gate. Citing an authority, like citing a peer-reviewed paper that's relevant to the field, is not an argument from authority. In fact, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's a great thing. So part of the reason why this particular fallacy is so tricky and. and misused is because it's kind of subtle the difference between it being being fallacious to cite someone and it being good and reasonable to cite someone so let's start with what's not fallacious the good stuff Hmm. like we said it's not a fallacy to cite experts in their field for questions in their fields because experts in a particular topic have more experience they have more training they have access to better information etc than laymen do and you know, this should be obvious. If if you want to know what's going on inside a black hole, you don't ask your plumber, unless your plumber happens to be a physicist. <laughs> yeah. Or the black hole you want to know about is the pipe that you just cut off in your bathroom because you messed right. up. <laughs> you would go talk to a physicist who studies black holes, and he's probably going to know more about it than some random guy you pull off the street. Right. And so uh, if a large number of experts in a thing agree on a particular thing, that should increase our confidence that 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 thing is true because the odds of all of these very well-informed intelligent people being convinced of something that's false are lower not impossible it's not conclusive but it's lower for instance uh every or nearly every climatologist agrees that human activity is causing climate change so that should increase our com our confidence that human activity is in fact causing climate change mm-hmm. right if you have a rash and your dermatologist says it was due to poison ivy, but your hairdresser says it was because of Mars and Venus being in a certain position, you should probably go with the doctor, right? Right. right. We, we've talked about this one before, too. <laughs> yeah. <that people> actually, <laughs> yeah. That's a thing. So, so yeah. but it, it is a fallacy. So what does it look like when you do when you commit the fallacy? The first thing that people often do is they cite an authority who is not actually an expert in the field they're talking about. So you see this all the time with anti-vaxxers. They'll say, well, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Berger, whoever, says that vaccines are bad, and here's his video. But it turns out that guy is a doctor, and he's like a chiropractor, which has absolutely nothing to do with vaccines or viruses or anything. So that is a fallacious use of authority. It's like a, it's an irrelevant authority. So the first thing you want to make sure is the expert you're citing is actually an expert in the thing you're citing them for. Right. And that, that can even be like there's subspecialties within fields too, right? So it depends on how narrow your question is uh, or the thing you're examining, sure. you know. So. You, you could cite a historian about some intricate detail of Roman antiquity. But if that guy is a historian who focuses on civil war, yeah. he might have very little idea what's going on in Rome right. in the 100 CE, you know? So yeah, being an expert in one thing doesn't make you an expert in all things. Also- Unless you're Ken Jennings, but then- Well, obviously, it, right. 
or me or Jared. You can believe us no matter what we say. Uh, Or the person you're citing is an outlier. There are a lot of experts, and some of them are crazy. So, for instance, there's a couple of physicists who work for Answers in Genesis, which is a young Earth creationist organization. And these physicists will tell you the Earth is 6,000 years old, and they are wrong. But they're physicists, right? Uh, You can occasionally find a medical doctor who's an anti-vaxxer. But if 99.9% of a field says A, and one guy says B, well, probably the one guy's wrong. Yeah. You also need to consider too, is if you're doing research for something and you're trying to find an answer and you find this outlier, like you have to look and survey for more than one, right? You can't just Mm -hmm. say, oh, this guy says this, let me go with that. You need to say, well, what are the other experts in the field say as well and compare them? Has anyone cited this person's work? Did he make any, is he generating any kind of uh, change in his field? Now, finally note, we've been talking about probability here. So, The consensus of experts is likely to be true, but it is not necessarily true. Experts can be wrong. But just because experts can be wrong doesn't mean they are wrong or are usually wrong, right? So it would be fallacious to say that because all of these experts say it, it is necessarily the case that it is true. That would be false, right? But we're talking probabilistically. We have to make a decision. You should go with whatever the consensus of experts say, unless you have a very good reason not to. Yeah. And so when we go about citing authorities, we want to you know, summarize here, make sure that they are actually an authority in the field. Um, we want to make sure that they're not like on some fringe topic or some outlier out there, you know, the end is nigh kind of stuff. And um, we want to make sure we understand the f- the field in general, right? So all right. their conclusions and everything else. But That's not to say that you can't be convinced of a minority position or you should necessarily reject what they have to say out of hand, but you should go in with eyes open. And if you're listening to a scholar who represents the minority, you should be aware of that right. and then hear both sides. Okay, so that's going to so, be relevant here when we go yeah. into our actual topic. Uh, did Jesus have a brother? Like we said, this is a common uh, argument that gets thrown around in the context of Jesus mythicism. The mythicists, for those who aren't aware, believe that Jesus was not a historical person, that the person that the religion of Christianity is based on never existed. He was made up by whatever. The, the, the exact circumstances vary by your mythicist. But somehow this fictional person got placed into history. That's what they say. Yeah. One of the counter arguments to this is the references to James being a brother of Jesus. And you can't have a brother if you didn't exist, right? Right. So they, they'll go to great extents, actually, to you know say, well, this, this isn't James. They're not actually talking about a brother. Um, but for today's episode, like we both, Jordan and I both believe that Jesus existed as a historical person. And one of the main reasons that we think this, the main piece of evidence, is that we have decent citations and examples of James, the brother of Jesus, in references throughout history. So we're going to talk about two of those pieces of evidence today. The first piece of evidence is going to be from Paul, who's one of our earliest sources for Christian traditions, Christians' writings. And so he is the earliest Christian. <clears throat> writer we have. We don't have any writings from before Paul. Paul was writing in the 50s CE, and uh, Jesus is thought to have died in like the early 30s, 
right? So this is within 20 years of Jesus's death. And Paul himself uh, was persecuting Christians very shortly after Christianity started. So he was aware of the Christian movement to some extent early on. It's hard to say exactly how early on, but within some number of years. Yeah. And by the least 10 years, I mean. Yeah. Right. Because not only was he, he had to be persecuting them, which means he had to be aware of them enough to want to persecute them. Then he had to have his Damascus Road experience where he converts. Then he goes and plants a bunch of churches. And then he's writing these letters to these churches he planted. So yeah. that's kind of the timeline. Uh, I think you'll hear about the early church creed in First uh, Corinthians sometimes, uh, and they'll try to date that that Christian creed uh, back to like three to four years within the the resurrection or the the crucifixion of Jesus. But this these are some of the things they use to try to date that, like backdating Paul's work. So, but for sure, Paul is writing before the Gospels, which are sixties, maybe definitely seventies. Yeah. So. First writings we get about from any Christian are Paul. Yeah. Uh, Paul wrote uh, many different letters in the New Testament. Some of them are not actually by Paul, even though they're attributed to Paul. Pseudepigrapha. Right. Also known as a forgery, where a person <laughs> is saying they're someone and they definitely aren't. Well, it's but interesting that in, in history, like uh, in scholarship, we call it pseudepigrapha, but it literally is plagiarism. Like, But we call it that so we don't have to call it a bad thing, right? Like, well, everybody was doing it, so it was great. Well, you know? as Bart Ehrman likes to say, why use a perfectly good English word when you have a Latin word instead? You know, so uh, so yeah. there are, what is it? It's seven, right? Seven letters that are considered pretty much seven, undisputedly authentic. Yes, seven authentic letters. Uh, the ones that we're going to be looking at today specifically are Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Romans, uh, and 2 Corinthians. Those are the ones that relate to our topic today. All of which are undisputably <clears throat> written by Paul. Yes. So the first reference is in Galatians 1, verses 18 and 19. If you'll open your Bibles and flip to that page. <laughs> Or go to Bible got, Gateway or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, it says, so in the in context, he's writing to the church in Galatia. Galatia, right? Is that the name of the region, I think? Yeah. Galatia. Galatians. Yeah. Galatia. No. Galatia. Galatia. Galacticus. He's writing to the Galacticans. And uh, he's talking about how he got the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he says, then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Editors note, that's Peter. He had two different names and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother, or sometimes translated the brother of the Lord. Yeah. And that one's because he's saying the Lord's brother. He's specifically saying James, the Lord's brother. So we'll get now, into the breakdown of that here in a little bit, right? The, the reason he has to say James, the Lord's brother is because in the ancient world, unless you were like an aristocrat, like, like a noble, basically, you didn't have a last name. Only the yeah. noble families had last names, right? If you were just run-of-the-mill schmuck, you were just James. That's the only name you had. Yeah. And James was a pretty common name. Yeah. So there were a lot of Jameses running around. You and know so James, you, the guy, James, yeah, uh, the yeah, Domino's delivery driver, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So it, it, it may seem odd, but it's really not. If you think about how you actually talk to people, if just like you just said, if I was trying to like James, I might say James, the guy from uh, Chicago, or James, the guy who delivers pizzas, same thing. James, you know, the Lord's brother, or James, the guy who like drinks a lot, <laughs> Right. <laughs> whatever. 
But you might ask, well, what about Cephas? He's already established earlier in this letter, Cephas and Peter. So he'll he'll go back and forth between Peter and Cephas, depending on the context. But um, he's already talked about Cephas earlier in the letter. So that's why he's not in this specific verse. That is called, uh, that that addendum to the name is called an appellation, where you're kind of like appealing to some kind of signifying thing. And it's elsewhere in the Bible. You have like Mary Magdalene, as opposed to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as opposed to some other Mary. Okay, so in this case, this is James, the Lord's brother. Uh, Another reference is in 1 Corinthians 9, 3 through 6. In this one, he's writing, and uh, people are criticizing some people who are going on mission work uh, and, like, bringing their wives with them. And he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to our food and drink? Do we not have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So basically, people are criticizing him for working and, and like getting things from the church. And Paul is pointing to these other privileges that other people are getting. And among those other people are apostles the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas. Right. So now we have two examples of Paul referring to some sort of familial connection with people in the Lord, right? Right. So he talks about families and brotherhood a lot. So we're going to go through a couple other places in his letters that he talks about this sort of thing. Yeah. In so, Romans 8.29, uh, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Uh, it means, the Greek means, among many brothers. Uh, and then at 1 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothness. Sothnessness. I don't know how to pronounce that name. whatever. Yeah. So he says, I'm Paul, called here, and our brother, and then he gives a name. He does yeah. something similar in 2 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Yeah. Uh, he talks about brothers again in back in Romans, Romans 16. He greets a bunch of people, Rufus, chosen uh, in the Lord. Basically, he's like writing to people in the church that he wants to say hello to. Just a bunch of names, yeah. bunch of names, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. So this sort of familial connection that's like describing Christians as brothers and sisters is something Paul does all the time. Yeah. He does it once more in in Romans and 1623. Uh, Of note... We are quoting and using the NRSV updated edition for all of our um, um, things here. I think it's probably one of the most accurate uh, translation, literal translations. Um, however, if you had the ability to read Greek, you would want to refer to this and look at the Greek. Paul uses uh, the word that he uses for brother. He has two different words here. One is Adelphos, and then the other one is um, Adelphoi. And so the first one, Adelphos, is something that he uses when he's referring to them in a figurative sense. So, for example, when he says, you know, our brother Cordus or, um, you know, Timothy, our brother, he's using the term Adelphos there, which basically means this is a figurative relationship of Christians. Kind of like, you know, today you might go to a church and say, hey, brother Jordan, how are you doing today? That's the same term he's using there, right? The only time Paul uses the term, the brother of the Lord. So this is specific here. 
He uses it twice. The brother of the Lord in Galatians 1.19, and then in 1 Corinthians 1.9, he says the brothers of the Lord, okay? In both of those, he's using Adelphon, which is the plural, and Adelphoi for, for those things. But it has the clarifying, which I don't know how to speak Greek, but it's like the toy... It- Copo something. I, I'm not. Uh, it, it, it looks like T O U K U P I O U. Yeah. That's not that. Those are Greek letters. They're not yeah. actually that. But but the the important thing is there's an addendum to it. Right, there's he's when, adding. He's of. saying Adelphos or Adelphoi when he's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, like brothers and sisters, brother Tom, brother whoever. And then when he's talking back in Galatians, when he was talking about. I didn't see any uh, apostle other than James, the Lord's brother, the Adelphoi toy cupio or however you say that yeah and he does something similar in first corinthians so this is very distinctive he uses this fictive kinship language all the time but he only uses this specific phrase brothers of the lord twice and both times he's only talking about instances where it would make sense for it to be physical brothers and what do i mean by that if uh we're told by mythicists richard carrier being probably the biggest proponent, that when he says James, the Lord's brother, he's just talking about him being a brother of the Lord, like a Christian. Basically, it's just a name for Christian. So let's look back at Galatians 1 and pretend that that was correct, right? And -hmm. remember what the purpose of an appellation is. It's to tell you who this James is, as opposed to all the other Jameses. So after three years, did I go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stay with him 15 days? I did not see any other apostle except James the Christian. Well, if if it's implied, he didn't say any other apostle except implying that James is an apostle. He's an apostle, right? So an apostle is someone who's seen the Lord and is a Christian. That's like part of being an apostle, right? right? So if he didn't see any apostle except for James the Christian, you haven't told him what effing James you're talking about. You haven't said I'm anything. Just, yeah, there was probably – well. So you have the apostle part there, right? So for Paul, the apostle is somebody who had a revelation of Jesus because Paul had to set himself up as an apostle. He never met Jesus in person, so he's only had a revelation of him, right? So that is important to distinguish that. But he's speaking of apostles, right? So he, if he said James the apostle, like that might make sense. I met James the apostle, Right, if there was only one apostle, if there James, was only one apostle sure. James, but or, he said other apostles except James, and then he has this clarifying appellation, right. which is the brothers, the Lord's and, brother. And if the Lord's brother simply meant Christian, the sentence makes no sense. And it's even worse in First Corinthians. This is the one where he's saying, you know, I do I not have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife? As to the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. And if we're going to take care of then what he's saying is, as to the other apostles and the Christians and Cephas, it makes no sense. Why right. the apostles and Christians in general and Cephas, like they're all Christians. You didn't say anything. But if it is an actual physical brother, then he's talking about three classes of people. The apostles, people who had revelations of Jesus, the people who are physically related to the dude, and also Cephas. Yeah. And this is important, too, because... Um, Carrier cites a guy named Trudinger that did some work on this. And this is pretty heady stuff when it comes in because you're, you're starting to get into like syntax, verb usage, like the grammatical structure of things. Um, 
But Carrier has a site that says, oh, he's just referring to them more as like, you know, like you would say brother, like we're talking about. And, you know, we're showing that once you plug it in there in layman's terms, it doesn't make sense. But there's a really good article by a guy named Howard. This was done in the 70s, by the way. So not very recent, but Howard was refuting Trudinger's argument who Carrier uses, right? And uh, so Howard basically says that the notion that Paul was just referring to James as a Christian when he says brother because he was not an apostle doesn't fit with the grammar and syntax normally used by Paul. So you can go read Howard if you want. But basically what he's saying is that – The citation is Howard, 1977, was James an apostle, a reflection on a new proposal for Galatians 119. Yes. So basically what Howard ends up saying is like, if Paul meant that James was just a brother of the Lord, he could have just used that statement, a brother of the Lord. Like he could have just made it like there's no reason. And that would have fit with Paul's language and the way that he wrote. But Paul specifically puts the brother of the Lord. And because we have other examples of Paul using a brother of the Lord or brothers and sisters in Christ and things like that he would have used that same structure had he implied it there. And so uh, it, it's really hard to explain, but there's a lot of good literature out there and a lot of good scholarship specifically on these passage. And it's not just Paul, of course, who reports uh, Jesus having brothers. If you look through the Gospels, though, those Gospels are later and the Gospels are problematic as sources because they were written by Christians for Christians. They're not simply sober retellings of history. So historians mm-hmm. have to do a lot of work to try to figure out what is likely historical versus what is a later development. But all of the gospels agree that Jane, that Jesus had brothers and sisters and uh, where they, to the extent they named them, that James is one of them. It's unclear how many brothers and sisters he had. Uh, it's said that he had, had both um, yeah. un- unknown who they were, but, Certainly he had some, according to every source on the topic. So this is interesting. So I tried to find, because I was like, well, when I was doing my undergrad, everyone's like, you know, the consensus is, the consensus is, well, like, how do you know, like, what the consensus is, like, as a scholar, or if you're looking, well, uh, so we talked about uh, meta-analysis before, right? So I found an article, now this was done in 2006, so it's not, you know, within 10 years, but pretty recent. Uh, And this is about as close to a meta-analysis as you can get in the field of like, you know, ancient textual criticism and stuff. So this is by a guy named Milikoski, and the name of the article is James the Just in History and Tradition, Perspectives of Past and Present Scholarship, uh, Part 1, and this was done in 2006. He surveyed 119 different scholars who were currently working on specifically James all of them believed uh, that James was uh, a brother of Jesus. And for some reason or another, they, they weren't all specifically saying James is the brother, but they were all doing work on the topic. And every single one of them was in consensus that James had a had traditions within the church that relate back to being a brother of Jesus. So that's, that's right. pretty crazy, actually. You don't find that too often. That's a very broad agreement. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who is, of course, an extremely famous scholar of the New Testament, probably the one that if you're if you're not like deep into this, this sort of field, if you've only heard of one guy, there's a good chance it's Bart Ehrman. 
And he says, and so Jesus' brothers were his actual brothers. Paul knows one of these brothers personally. It's hard to get much closer to the historical Jesus than that. (laughs) (laughs) If he says, if Jesus never lived, you would think that his brother would know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's evidence from the Bible. Now, a lot of people, atheists particularly, don't like to use the Bible as evidence. And I can understand their hesitation. Uh, If no matter what else the Bible is, it's a book written in history by people who lived near the time of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Whatever else it is, it is certainly that. But there's actually one other source we can use for this piece. And this is kind of unusual because Jesus, though he's extremely influential now, he's arguably the single most influential person of all time, uh, per- certainly in the West. Yeah, uh, He was not very important in his time. He was, you know, the founder of a small sect of Judaism that didn't really make a bunch of waves, not for several centuries. Because if he did, we would have writings about him. We would (laughs) have a lot of writing, maybe even coins, maybe you never know. But yeah, he certainly wasn't very important at the time. So he's not talked about a lot, but he is mentioned by one historian of the day. And that historian is a Jewish uh, person named Josephus. So we've talked about Josephus before on this podcast, but the brief Cliff Notes version is Josephus lived in the first century. He mm-hmm. was, um, I think he was born before Jesus died. I don't remember exactly when he was born. He was a little bit after Jesus' time, but writing contempt- like very shortly after. And he was took part in the Jewish revolution. He lost, but made some savvy moves that got him in good with the Romans. He was rebelling against, and he eventually wrote a bunch of books for the Romans, mainly history of the Jewish people. And so he is not a Christian. This is a Jew who's writing about Jewish stuff. And for he Romans. meant for, for the Roman audience pr- principally. Yeah. And so uh, he wrote uh, a series of book called The Antiquities. Um, and I think it was like The Antiquities of Jew of uh, Antiquities of the Jews. Of the Jews. And it's yeah. supposed to be like a history of his people, basically. And he there's like many, many volumes to this book. It's a lot to read. But he mentions Jesus twice, and he mentioned James specifically, the brother of Jesus, one time. Uh, that comes in Antiquities 20. He actually mentions a Jesus multiple times. But oh. A lot of people were named Jesus. So right. There are a great many Jesuses running around in, in, in Josephus' yeah. writings. But that's because the name Jesus, like you said, it was like John or like yeah. Joe, you know. Very popular. Very popular name. So Jesus two that we can link to the historical Jesus, right? So Jesus was not even close to the most important Jesus to Josephus. He was like a little footnote Jesus, but he was in there. So, uh, in antiquities 20, uh, Josephus is basically going through these lists of high priests and talking about like how one succeeded the other. And so in antiquities 20 chapter nine, He's uh, talking about kind of a political struggle that's going on. There's uh, the Roman procurator is named Albinus, and he was appointed by uh, Caesar, and he's ruling uh, Judea. And at that time, uh, the king deprived a guy named Joseph of the high priest, and he gave it to a guy named Ananus, A-N-A-N-U-S. An anus. Yeah, whose dad was also called an anus. And uh, here's the reference that's important. Again, this is in chapter 9, Antiquities 20. Uh, 
But this younger Ananus, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. And he was also of the sect of the Sadducees, who are very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Jews, as we have already observed. When therefore Ananus was of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was but on the road. So the guy in charge is gone, is what he's saying there. So he assembled the Sanhedrin, which is the court of Jewish law, uh, like the Jewish ruling council. So he assembled the, San, uh, the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others or some of his companions. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of law, he delivered them to be stoned. And then it goes on about how this was considered, uh, this was against the rules and he was told on. Um, Albinus was, the Roman was pissed, removed him from power and bestowed upon um, and, and gave the office of high priest that was Ananus's. He gave that instead to Jesus, the son of Damnius. Right. And then it goes on. Okay. So we have here Josephus, a Jewish scholar who references, he says, hey, this James who is brought in, he was the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. Uh, the connotation of the of the Greek here is like the so-called or the like the alleged Christ. Yeah. It's, it's kind of skeptical, right? So, uh, And the only reason he mentions this is to clarify who this James was, right? Right. This is a James. And in order to tell you what James it is, that James's brother is Jesus, who was called Christ. So you'll know which James it is. He's the one whose brother was a Messiah or claimed to be a Messiah, was yeah. what Josephus is saying. Um, and he does it. And then later, and this is important, later he says another Jesus, right? So this is why it's important to, decide, to tell you who Jesus he's talking about. He says, this other Jesus, who's the son of Damnius, that right. guy got the high priesthood. And that's why this passage gets complicated, because some people would think that you know, maybe he's referring to Jesus right. and Damnus, but we'll get into those specifics here in a second. So uh, this is a reference to James by Josephus, and uh, he's not a Christian, so he has no like reason, there's no motivation for Josephus to say this. So what the mythicists will say is that, well, this is a Christian interpolation. And interpolation is like where a Christian scribe like made something up or wrote something down or changed something in some way. And yeah. so... What they'll say is that the Jesus is not actually Jesus of Nazareth, the one we know, but the Jesus whose brother was James is actually Jesus, the son of Damnius. And that a scribe either took out son of Damnius and like put in who was called Christ, or maybe there was no appellation originally. And like it just said, James, whose brother was Jesus and like a scribe like wrote in the margins who was called Christ or whatever. Yeah, like sometimes the scribes would do that as like question mark, like, hey, was this was right. this Jesus? Like, is this the Christ guy? Like we're talking now, about here. And to be fair, it's not completely implausible that this would happen. Scribes in antiquity were no better than people today. And so it wasn't uncommon for scribes to write little margins notes like that because um, they couldn't like erase it. Right. So if they yeah. like thought they messed up. They might scribble in a little margin note or scribes would mess up and the next scribe who comes along would fix it or the next scribe thought the guy messed up but he didn't actually so he fixes it with giant air quotes but he actually fixed it wrong you know so like yeah. it's not completely ridiculous that this is this would happen right but it doesn't make a lot of sense in this context because first of all uh 
he has an appellation son of Damnius later. And so it's not completely unheard of, but it would be unusual for Josephus to repeat the appellation again, unless another Jesus got thrown in. So it'd be weird of him to say Jesus, son of Damnius. And then a few sentences later to say Jesus, son of Damnius again. Right. Right. Unless he had been going off in a big, long passage and there was like 10 Jesuses in there and he really wants you to make sure, right? Right. So that's not conclusive, but it is suggestive. Uh, Also, if he was – if James is the brother of Jesus, who is the son of Damnius, well, then isn't James the son of Damnius? So couldn't he have just said James, son of Damnius? Right. Right. Uh, Also a little weird. Uh, Another thing is that, again, remember that the the so-called – Christ, who was called Christ, uh, that's kind of skeptical. And so if, if a Christian was going to throw that note in, it seems like a, a odd choice of words for a Christian scribe. It, it seems like something more skeptical than a later Christian would throw in there. Um, yeah. So in order for this to be an uh, interpolation, you'd have to believe that the scribe removed Jesus, son of Damius, the high priest from the first sentence, added in Jesus, who was called Christ, uh, using the skeptical verbiage and then either added in the appellation later or Josephus broke his custom. And also Josephus, when referring to the son of Damnius, went kind of a roundabout way. So Josephus would have to have written in an unclear fashion. A Christian would have had to have corrected it in a oddly unchristian fashion and so on. And so for these reasons and many others, uh, it's not, universal but it's pretty close to universal that this is an authentic reference to james to the point where i actually uh in preparation for this podcast and uh plug for later i'm going to be going on to godless engineers channel to talk about uh the historical jesus and in preparation to that i got a book on josephus specifically and it's um a companion to josephus and it's uh, basically a collection of scholarly articles, and one of the articles is on the Testimonium Flavianum, which is another reference to Jesus in Josephus. And in there, the scholar, Alice Wheely, uh, kind of mentions offhand that there's this other reference to James, and it's it's so uncontroversial that it didn't even warrant like treatment in this companion book about josephus that's like talking about all of the controversies and questions of the day it doesn't even merit the list right because it's not that nobody is arguing that this is a interpolation by christian scribes but almost nobody is arguing that because pretty much every relevant scholar agrees that this is an authentic uh thing written by josephus so the other thing to mention here, because we're not going to go into the testimony of Flavianum because it doesn't really relate to the James question, but Josephus does have another mention in this testimony of Flavianum about Jesus being the so-called Christ or believed to be the Christ, however it's written, which most scholars believe is original to that specific passage, which is important because they're connect those two words the so-called Christ in both the Flavianum passage and the Ananias passage are connecting. So Josephus is basically saying, Hey, I already mentioned this guy once before for you when he's referring it to it in the Ananias passage. Right. So that's how we connect them. And that's important because some ethicists will argue, well, if Josephus was going to say the so-called Christ, he would have to explain to the reader what that meant. Right. But in fact, if the testimonium Flavianum is in some sense original, which most scholars, not all, 
but most scholars agree there was some part of it that was original. Then two books ago, he already mentioned this Christ guy, and so he doesn't necessarily need to delve into it all right. again. Another thing that's brought up by mythicists sometimes is, well, he talks about other, Josephus talks about other messianic figures, uh, people who who would have proclaimed themselves a messiah, which means Christ, right? And so why doesn't he call them the so-called Christ? Well, you have to remember his audience. Josephus is writing to Romans, right? And Christian Christianity existed in the Roman Empire. It wasn't big. It was very small. But it was possible some Romans might have heard of these Christians. And so if he was going to call anyone the so-called Christ, it would be the one that the Roman audience he's talking to is familiar with, maybe. Like, hey, you know those Christians? It's because of this guy. Yeah. And he's he this guy is the so-called Christ. Like it's like right. point out to Exactly. Yeah. So oh. uh all of this is to say that there's good reasons to believe that James was the brother of Jesus and he was a physical person. He's referenced by Paul. He's referenced by the gospel authors, whoever they were. He's mm-hmm. referenced by Josephus, who was a scholar almost contemporary to Jesus. And so that's excellent attestation for someone in history. I mean, I won't say it's like the best. I, I mean, someone like yeah. Caesar Augustus is better attested because we have like statues of the dude, right? <laughs> yeah. But as Jews of the first century go, he's probably one of the best attested Jews there is. Right. So we, if you just take Josephus and Paul right there, you have two kind of separate attestations of James being the brother. And then you kind of couple that with the early church tradition that James was a brother of Jesus. Like those are three things that are hard to argue against. And you have to go to some very crazy mind gymnastics to kind of argue against it. Like the most simplest reading is like, oh, James had a brother. His name was Jesus. Like, And you have to, in addition to every other thing you'd have to do to show mythicism, this must be false. Like yeah. the whole, like exactly which gospel had priority, how interrelated they are, whether they were mystery cult, like some of those things could rise or fall. But if jo- Josephus knows James and James is the brother of Jesus or Paul met James, who's the brother of Jesus, either of those things are true. Mythicism is false. Full stop. Yeah. Right. Either one, not both at the same time. Just one yeah. of them. Just if either one of those is true, mythicism is false end of story and so you have to remember when you're trying to like hold this case of mythicism in your head you have to it's the probability that both of these things are simultaneously false and also everything else is true it's the case does not look good um yeah now some people have argued that the reason that um this is seen to be true. The reason that yeah, the scholarly consensus is because all of these scholars are Christians, right? And it's that they have to believe that Jesus was a real person in order to maintain their faith. And that's why they're, it's kind of like motivated reasoning. Which that's, makes sense a little bit, right? Yeah, it's, it's not a ridiculous notion. And I'll even say that I am certain that there are scholars that are like this. I mean, if you, mm-hmm. they're, if you look at um, some Jerry universities... Gary Habermas is a great example. Uh, yeah. Or if you look at what was that? Biola is a William university. Lane Craig, he's a professor at Biola. Right. Some universities, Biola is one of them, have a statement of faith that if you are going to work there, you have to agree with. And it obviously includes things like <laughs> Jesus being the son of God. And so it's hard 
you know, if you're a scholar there, I can understand like a skeptic or an atheist not believing your work because you're like contractually obligated to come to a certain conclusion. Right. right. It's not that just you have to agree with it. You cannot publish any works that contradict that statement of faith. Exactly. Right. If you want to continue yeah. your employment there. So I can understand skepticism for that. That seems reasonable to me. However, those are not the only Christians, uh, scholars that exist, right? There's a whole world of scholarship out there that has nothing to do with those universities. Yeah. And <laughs> there are, there are, scholars that come from berkeley and from yale and from stanford cambridge and, from oxford and, and cambridge, oxford right? yeah right these are like th the world is bigger than conservative christianity and just to give an example of uh we're going a little away from the james question and more just the mythicist question but uh being a secular scholar secular scholarship is not the same as a non-christian scholar you can have a christian scholar who is a good secular scholar. Uh, for instance, if you read Marcus Borg, he's a Christian and he doubts the traditional authorship of the gospels. He is, doesn't think you can establish the resurrection historically. If you look at John Dominic Crossan, he doesn't think the dude got buried at all. He thinks that yeah. the guy was eaten by dogs. Uh, if you look at Dale Allison, he also says you can't establish the resurrection historically. These are Christians who work in the field of, you know, new Testament scholarship. Right. Yeah. And so clearly it's not the case that uh, you, if there's a Christian, they can't possibly be reliable. I mean, even if you look at like someone like Mike Lacona, who is a very conservative, I, I don't know if he claims the title evangelical for himself, but he's definitely like on the conservative end of scholarship, right? But even he will say things like, I am not 100% sure that the resurrection happened, you know? Now, Which is unheard of, but I mean, yeah. Right. In his circles, that got him in some trouble. Uh, so, yeah, that. Well, I think what's important about this topic, though, is that the reason we're bringing it up here at the end is because a lot of the scholarship that we've cited and used for this particular episode comes from Christian scholars. But we want to make, make it clear that not just because you're a Christian scholar doesn't mean you don't do good scholarship. Just like how Sir Francis Collins can do great science work on the Human Genome Project – and be a Christian, you can also be a Christian and do great scholarship on the question of James, a brother of Jesus. And if it was the case that uh, the only reason these scholars are coming to this conclusion is because they're Christian, then we would expect the non-Christian scholars to come to a different conclusion. Right. But that is not at all what we see. There because are, there are non-Christian scholars, Bart Arman being one of them, uh, but there's others as well. And so. especially if you go in the scholars of Josephus, a lot of them are Jewish because he's a Jewish figure, right? Yeah. So, and some well, of them are just experts in Roman history yeah, or whatever. Some, some people study Roman history and they're not religious at all. And they, right. they study Josephus. So, so uh, if it were the case that the only reason people are coming to this conclusion is because of their bias, the motivated reasoning, then we would expect to see a stark difference between the scholarship about Josephus and the, or non-Christian scholars in general and the conclusions of Christian scholars. And that is not what we see. We do see a stark difference in the conclusions from conservative evangelical scholarship, the kind of places with those statements of faith and critical scholarship that work for places like Stanford and Oxford. We do see a stark yeah. difference there. Do you know where else we see a stark difference? In the majority in the consensus of scholarship and mythicists. And, 
mainstream internet atheism. Yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> so maybe just saying. Uh, just, saying. Yeah, just saying. I mean, we, if um, you want to look for some motivated reasoning, maybe the mirror is a good place to look. Yeah. Well. So uh, to sum up. Now that we've gone on our soapbox diatribe, uh, there's a lot of good scholarship around James. There's several sources that indicate that James was the brother of Jesus. And if Jesus had a brother, he for show existed. Right. So I think if you're a mythicist and you want to hold to your mythicist position, that's great. But I think you should really examine some of the other scholarship about James because if James was the brother of Jesus, Jesus existed. Right. right so. And you, you should recognize that the position you hold in that case is a fringe position that is not accepted by any historian of Jesus with a number of exceptions you could count on one hand. So back Which to the we very talked beginning. about in the verse part, you know. Right. Yeah. It, it, could it be true that Richard Carrier and Richard Carrier alone has stumbled on the truth? Sure, it could be true. But probably not, right? So, yeah, yeah. And, and like, like we said earlier, like we would, if we could prove that Jesus didn't exist, it would make our current position much easier to hold. Right. I would love for that to be true. Unfortunately, that's not what the evidence says. Yeah. So that's our show, guys. I hope you got something out of it. Uh, I'll be on Godless Engineers channel next week from when I'm recording which is the 24th, so definitely tune into that. And if you're listening here because of that, then welcome to the channel. Uh, leave us a comment if you disagreed with us or if you agreed with us, thought there was something that we didn't cover or something you'd like us to cover in the future. And uh, hit the subscribe button. You know, like, comment, subscribe. Stuff really helps the channel. Uh, share to anybody else who is interested in the extremely niche topic of the familial relationships of Je Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, now that you say it, it is pretty French. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? This is what everybody does on their weekends. Yeah. Um, we're. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that one alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, and while you're doing that, remember you always have reason to doubt. Peace out. <laughs>